This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 29 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. It's hard to believe that it's already been seven years since the Kiruna ministerial meeting in northern Sweden when five Asian states, China, India, Japan, Singapore, and South Korea, as well as Italy, were admitted as observers to the Arctic Council. At the time, there was quite a bit of uncertainty, not to mention controversy, as to whether any or all of the new applicants should or would be granted observer status in a regional body so far removed from their own territories. I was fortunate enough to be there in Kiruna in 2013, and there was definitely a sense of geopolitical drama over what felt like a turning point for the Arctic and the Arctic Council. A new book called Observing the Arctic, Asia in the Arctic Council and Beyond takes a look at how the 2013 influx of Asian observer states has played out so far. On this episode of the podcast, I'll speak with one of the contributors to that volume, Dr. Mia Bennett, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong and founder of Cryopolitics, really a must-read blog for those interested in polar affairs. We'll discuss the role of Asian states in the Arctic in general, and in particular how Singapore and South Korea have adopted a strategy of engaging with the indigenous people's organizations that are permanent participants in the Arctic Council. Here's Mia, explaining how the involvement of Asian states in the Arctic has evolved since 2013. You know, gosh, a lot has happened in seven years, but we've seen, I think, the different Asian observers evolve in different ways with regard to their interests and activities in the Arctic and their participation in the Arctic Council. Probably the country that has taken it the farthest and also received the most attention and scrutiny would be China. Um, so we've seen China, you know, like other Asian observers, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, India, you know, observer in 2013. But then I think China has kind of moved a lot farther ahead, as we saw with its release of its Arctic policy in 2018. Um, and then now the country has built its first speaker. So it has it already had an icebreaker in its possession, but now it has its first domestically built one, and that's currently on an expedition in the Central Arctic Ocean. So we've seen a lot of scientific endeavors come out of China, um, the continuation of various test runs of the northern sea route. Um, so there's a lot of commercial interests. And then I would say within the Arctic Council, um, I so it's not being, you know, privy to the day-to-day interactions between various senior Arctic officials and observer representatives, I don't really know how China in that regard would compare to other Asian states. Um, I've heard from some people that actually other Asian countries are a little bit more active in those working groups than China might be. But I think at the kind of broader level, I would say China has advanced the most in terms of its activities in Arctic compared to the other, its other fellow Asian observers. You mentioned the greater scrutiny uh, given towards China amongst the uh, the Arctic Council uh, member states and also maybe the media and other observers as well when it comes to the Arctic. Do you think that these Asian countries, China in particular, but all the five uh, observers, do you think they've managed to leverage their, their observer status into a greater role in Arctic governance, which was, was all the expectation that uh, people were, were sort of, uh, the analysts were thinking, uh, laid behind their, their real uh, strong push to become observers in the first place? I do think that 
yes, being observers to the Arctic Council gave the Asian states a certain credibility in the eyes of the eight countries with territory in the Arctic and also maybe just the wider world of global governance. Um, since that moment of acceptance as observers in the in the years since then, um, China, Japan, and South Korea have somewhat formalized their trilateral dialogues on the Arctic. So they have a meeting every summer in a, one of their cities in their three countries that in which they discuss, I think, mostly science cooperation with regard to the Arctic. But so we've seen a little bit more regional cooperation coming out of Asia. And I think that builds on them being observers all in the same body, the Arctic Council. And then um, another good example, I think, would be the fact that all these three countries, China, Japan, and South Korea, were included in negotiations and also were signatories to the treaty that um, prohibits fishing in the high seas of the Central Arctic Ocean, which came into effect in 2018, I believe. And so I think, you know, the other Arctic states in the EU, which were also in negotiations, I think they may have been less likely to include the Asian states, those three, had they not been observers in the Arctic Council. So I think they're now seen as, you know, important, credible actors in the Arctic who are stakeholders in the region um, to some degree. So I think that's been an important kind of watershed moment in many ways. I mean, one of the one of the dimensions of their strategy back when they were applying for observer status was to create this perception that the Arctic is a is a region of of global stake through climate change and effects that uh, that impact the countries uh, all the way to the equator, Singapore, India, and others. Um, do you think they've managed to sort of re re imagine to to sort of convince the world that the Arctic is such a region of global stake? I think that they have. I mean, I kind of see Chinese representatives and actors perhaps doing that a bit more vocally than, let's say, representatives of South Korea, maybe, or India. But at the same time, Singaporean officials, Japanese officials are quite quick to say, yes, the Arctic is a region of global importance. What happens in the Arctic affects us. That being said, I think that officials of Arctic states are just as enthusiastic um, and is eager to push this narrative that the Arctic is a globally significant region. Um, so I think it's coming from both sides, both within the Arctic and outside the Arctic, this desire to kind of pump up the Arctic as a region of global political and economic and climatic significance. Right. That that uh, certainly is true. And you see different countries, different Arctic countries, uh, member states of the Arctic Council, adopting different ways of promoting this idea of, of the Arctic as a region of global stake, where on one hand, Iceland very much seems like they want to sort of draw attention to the Arctic uh, uh, using those those arguments. But maybe the, the way the United States does it is in a very different way of, of sort of talking about the global, uh, the global nature of the Arctic. Yeah, that's a really valid point. Like we do need to distinguish between the Arctic countries with regard to how just how enthusiastic they are about, you know, adopting this narrative that the Arctic is a region of global importance. And like you say, Iceland is probably the most vocal in that regard. Um, and I think a lot of that can directly be attributed to former president um, Olaf Grimson, who, you know, kind of spearheaded the Arctic Circle annual conference. Um, Iceland has really capitalized on being at the center of the North Atlantic, both in tourism and politics. I mean, this has been kind of a historic um, thing for the country going back to the Cold War. And then in contrast, you have countries like you say, the U.S., but I would also add Russia to that equation, which maybe are a little bit more hesitant to suddenly welcome 
all interested parties to the Arctic. So I think they see the region perhaps as a bit more of their own national backyard, so to speak, rather than the world's backyard. Of course, that was an issue that was uh, very, um, very current uh, around 2013 when the uh, when the Arctic, uh, the Asian countries were applying for membership to the Arctic Council as observers, and uh, the different uh, perspectives of the different uh, Arctic Council uh, member states, and there was a quite a bit of skepticism that time among some players, and uh, I think there probably still is. And at that time, also when these Arctic, uh, when these Asian uh, countries were accepted as observers, they also changed the Arctic Council changed the rules on on what it meant to be an observer and created more uh, expectations and requirements. Uh, how has that played out? These these obligations that uh, that the Arctic Council uh, observers have had to take on board have they been fulfilling these obligations? That, yeah, that's a good question. It's something I would probably have to research more in order to be able to give a, a fuller answer. But I do think that. You know, one of the expectations or requirements really is that the observers file an annual report that documents their activities um, with regard to the Arctic Council and its various working groups. And in these reports, if you read through them, they're all available publicly on the Arctic Council's website. You'll see that the different observers will all kind of, I think, sometimes use a little bit of the boilerplate language saying, oh, we respect indigenous peoples and we are trying to um, act on climate change. So they're saying the right things, you know, they're talking the talk, but are they walking the walk? I'm not sure if every country really is. And I also don't know how much the Arctic Council, you know, has resources to really monitor and enforce that. Um, so I think some countries, um, as I've kind of explored with regard to South Korea and Singapore, um, have maybe gone a little bit farther and really trying to live up to the spirit of being an observer in the Arctic Council and really taking um, a slightly more, I don't want to say genuine, but at least a more kind of proactive approach in working with the different parties under the Arctic Council's auspices to try and play a more um, active role in the region. That, of course, is the sort of the basis of this uh, recent uh, really uh, interesting chapter you've contributed to this edited volume on Arctic Council observers. Perhaps you can go deeper into that, Mia, about uh, how you um, look at uh, South Korea and Singapore and how they've really engaged with the permanent participants, that other um, class of, of um, parties to the Arctic Council, that uh, Singapore and South Korea have uh, really use that as a way to legitimize their, their efforts in the, um, in the region, but also perhaps to uh, increase their own maybe on-the-ground knowledge and engagement uh, in the high north. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. so I wrote this chapter a couple of years ago when I think at that time um, South Korea and Singapore were each individually making quite concerted efforts and working with um, various permanent participants. So as you mentioned, Arctic Council has these six permanent participants, which each of which represents um, an indigenous group, often spanning international borders in the Arctic. So you have one such as the um, Aliyu International Association, and that's one that South Korea has worked with um, to varying degrees um, on partnering with trying to map indigenous use of waters around the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. Um, so that's kind of a really intriguing pros project. And Honestly, a lot of what struck me and what kind of got me to research this was the fact that, you know, it's just not something you see every day, Asian countries partnering with Arctic indigenous people. So it was a quite surprising form of diplomacy, I mean, one that I wanted to um, dig into a little bit more. So I spoke with a couple of people who are working on these um, interesting forms of collaboration. And equally in Singapore, um, there were maybe one or two diplomats who really took an interest in the Arctic at a personal level, too. And I think that's 
kind of the origin of how Singapore came to be running programs where they will sponsor, you know, one student a year from an indigenous, um, from a permanent participant indigenous people's group to come and study in Singapore. Um, so I think that in itself also underscores the importance and the influence that individual diplomats can even have in trying to push forward these kind of projects. Um, because since I wrote, I've written this chapter a couple of years ago now, I don't know how much these projects have been built on in the intervening years. Um, one of those diplomats in Singapore has since retired. And so it would be interesting to see down the line if Singapore and also South Korea say, um, really keep up this cooperation with the permanent participants. I mean, do you think this is an effective strategy? And why do you think, I mean, besides these individual diplomats that have really taken this on themselves as their own perhaps cause, um, is there any sort of more structural or geopolitical reasons why um, Singapore and South Korea have adopted this strategy of uh, direct engagement, human-to-human contact with uh, individual um, uh, indigenous uh, people's uh, organizations that are permanent participants in the Arctic Council? Uh, and also why... In comparison, uh, India, Japan, and China have not done so. That I discussed a bit in the chapter is that Singapore and South Korea are perhaps somewhat distinct from the other three countries in that they don't maybe have serious conflicts with indigenous peoples within their own borders. Right. So Singapore, of course, you have varying ethnic conflicts. You have the Malay people who are considered the kind of indigenous people of Singapore, and then you have the Chinese and Tamil, the large three large groups, and then in South Korea, of course, these societies are heterogeneous, but South Korea is largely South Korean people. Um, and then in Japan, India, and China, you have, um, of course, in Japan, the conflicts with the Ainu people, and then in China and India, varying conflicts between the dominant ethnic minority and then groups that the government would not even acknowledge as indigenous and would say are, in fact, ethnic minorities only, perhaps. Um, so I think that kind of structural issue could prohibit those countries to a degree from working as closely with indigenous peoples in the Arctic because it might look somewhat disingenuous, for instance, if Japan starts partnering with, let's say, Nanette's reindeer herders, but doesn't even want to really um, promote or um, safeguard the interests of Ainu people within its own borders. So I think that's a very tricky situation maybe for China, Japan, and India to pursue in South Korea and Singapore might have a little bit more leeway in partnering with indigenous peoples without as easily offending any one population within their own borders, perhaps. No, it's very interesting because I've done some research on uh, not exactly that, but uh, on countries, the, the Asian countries are applying for observer status leading up to 2013. And they, in their applications and their speeches and documentation, uh, they often use their own indigenous people like the the uh, Ainu and uh, some of the uh, reindeer herding peoples in, in uh, China to motivate why they can can relate to the Arctic Council and some of the the, the issues and, and uh, contingencies in the, in the Arctic areas. But now that they've been granted the status, they perhaps uh, kind of uh, push that back into the back burner a bit uh, because of these uh, domestic uh, considerations. Yeah, I, th- I think that you hit the hit the nail on the head there. And it's actually perhaps most striking for Japan, I think, where um, there's very little acknowledgement even within, let's say, the country's Arctic policy or um, various kind of related speeches and the like of the Ainu people. So it's kind of a bit glaring almost that they are not really you know, promoting these people as a kind of reason for them to be a stakeholder in the Arctic, even. Um, Japan, Japanese officials are much more likely to talk about 
climate change and these kind of natural phenomena rather than any cultural social ties, even if they have, may have done that in the run-up to becoming an observer. You've been following these issues for many years now, for at least 10 years, I would guess, or more. And uh, you continue to travel around the world, I guess maybe not during the corona times, but uh, <laughs> but otherwise, I mean, I'm following you uh, on Twitter and, and your, your your excellent blog, Politics. You are very well-traveled and you go to a lot of these events, whether it's in Iceland or the Faroe Islands or all over the world, uh, Shanghai. And do you see a big difference between then and these these couple of years leading up to 2013 and now or like the last couple of years in the way that uh, the Asian countries talk about the Arctic, engage with the Arctic, or is it basically some sort of linear progression and staying on a lot of the same themes and uh, just putting into action a lot of the things that they kind of uh, promoted in their applications uh, for observer status? Hmm, let's see. I think looking back, I would say that for instance, with Singapore, I think Singapore had a higher profile in Arctic affairs a couple of years ago than it does today. Um, but again, I'm kind of talking about these issues from exactly as you mentioned, my vantage point of attending these conferences, going to different events within Asia. Um, I don't really know what the inner workings are like at the Arctic Council. Maybe Singapore is highly engaged and I'm just not aware of that. But um, so that would be something interesting to research further. But I would say on the broader face of things, I think, you know, each country is kind of now at a stage where it's perhaps developing and implementing its national policy or strategy in the Arctic. Um, as I mentioned, China has gone quite a long ways now in, um, you know, building more infrastructure, cooperating a lot with Russia and the Arctic. South Korea, I think, is probably doing a lot of kind of very scientific research in the Arctic, working with um, groups in Alaska, as I mentioned. But I think a lot of this is also just simply less, a lot of the kind of Asian interests and activities in Arctic are a little bit less novel than they used to be. So we just don't have this kind of media frenzy or even within the Arctic, like a confusion or a surprise that they're there. I think now they're just sort of accepted, right? They're brought to the table for fishing negotiations now and no one really blinks an eye anymore. So it's become almost a little bit status quo. And now we're seeing this kind of play out in a um, longer term way. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves down the line. Um, but I think that's kind of been, yeah, kind of just a, a deepening of their interests in general, but maybe less fanfare around that now. Well, I guess that uh, that maybe uh, demonstrates that their strategy has been successful, that they're, that uh, you don't really notice now that it's been kind of normalized that uh, Asian countries are involved in the Arctic and have a seat at the table or involved with different projects and such. Of course, the one country that maybe does continue to, to sort of uh, create uh, scrutiny, as you mentioned before, and and outright alarm would uh, be China, and uh, of course they get a lot of attention because of their 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 idea of the Polar Silk Road and such. And now um, uh, even the United States has has really been uh, very explicit in their concern about uh, China's involvement in the Arctic, in particular places like Greenland. But uh, in general, now how do you see that as as developing? And since um. Uh, Mike Pompeo's speech last year at the Arctic Council that uh, created a lot of a consternation amongst many observers. Um, do you see this as entering a new phase in uh, relations between, I don't want to generalize and say uh, Asian countries in the Arctic, but specifically China vis-a-vis uh, -vis some of the, um, some of the uh, Arctic Council uh, member states? Yeah, um, I think perhaps we're starting to see maybe a new kind of split in the Arctic. Um, I'm always very hesitant to say there's going to be, you know, new conflicts or new Cold War. I, I think these headlines are very reductive often. And, and 
don't address a lot of the excellent cooperation that does go on beneath um, you know, the surface and behind closed doors. But I do think that particularly within the U.S., there's a lot of concern not only about China, but also about Russia, Russian activities in the Arctic and a fear that the increasing economic cooperation between these two countries in developing Russia's northern regions and resources could spill over and then you know, lead to heightened military cooperation between the two. So I think there's certainly more tension than there was when I started researching um, kind of Arctic you know, affairs 10 years ago or so, where there's always been this kind of suspicion of Russia to a degree. Um, but now I think there's much more of this fear of perhaps an axis between Russia and China and the Arctic, now that China is an Arctic power, now that Russia and China are both considered much more in a kind of um, suspicious way by the U.S. and the West in a broader sense. So I think there's a lot more tension. And um, the question now isn't, or the, the debates now aren't, aren't so much over, oh, the Arctic is opening and losing sea ice in all these countries, Russia being the most powerful, and Arctic perhaps are rushing in. I think the question now is more, the debates now are more over, oh, we have two strengthening powers on the Arctic's edge, and this could be a new rift with the West, especially the U.S., given the animosity in the Trump administration towards China. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, it's, it is concerning, I think, um, but hopefully the Arctic can continue to be a region of general cooperation as it has been since the since the nineties, at least. I mean, what do you think about this this idea that there's a emerging axis between Russia and China in general, but specifically in the Arctic? I mean, there's been different uh, perspectives on that. Whether there's it's just an alliance of convenience or whether it's a, a long term strategic partnership. Uh, as a as a geographer, Mia, I mean. Geography, of course, plays a role with the, uh, the these two huge countries, uh, huge population, huge territory, uh, bordering each other. Um, Long term issues historically, but uh, right now their their interests in some ways converge in the Arctic. Do you see this as as something that's going to be uh, solidifying, or do you see them as, as sort of just two, having two different interests in the long run to to be a real a long term uh, strategic partners? Yeah, I I am skeptical of the two countries ability of Moscow's to build a very deep structural alliance between the two um, because I think it's much more a kind of relationship of convenience that at the moment and for the past few years has been quite nicely aligned in the sense that China is growing it wants to invest overseas and it also needs it needs resources so and then Russia in contrast, needs investment, it wants markets to export its oil and gas. So in that sense, China and Russia go very nicely together and the two leaders get along um, quite well. So it's all been kind of more or less, I think, positive for the two countries' cooperation in the Arctic. But whether that will last, I mean, if you look at the, you know, 400 years or so of relations between China and Russia, they've alternated over the centuries between kind of better times and much worse times that have, of course, been ended in various conflicts. You know, whether this will be a lasting alliance even in the Arctic is something that I would be wary of indicating. But I do think in the coming years, we'll probably see more and more Chinese investment and activities in the Russian Arctic because the Russians are eager for that. I would also say that I think other Arctic countries are quite, you know, eager to have Chinese investment too, because a lot of regions in various Arctic countries feel like they've actually been ignored 
by their um, southern capitals for a long time. So um, when I was at the, I was in northern Norway in Shirkanes, um early last year for this Berent Spectacle annual artistic and cultural festival. And their theme that year was the world's northernmost Chinatown. And most people I spoke to actually were pretty um, positive, um, or if not neutral, about um, Chinese investment in their in their town and Chinese tourists coming in. So they didn't have this suspicious mindset that I, as an American, thought they might have. Um, so I think, you know, generally maybe um, at a local level, people could be excited even beyond Russia for China to um, cooperate with them on infrastructure development and the like. Yeah, I think the the local versus national uh, perspective in some of these countries is is fascinating, and, and the point you make there, the example you make uh, of uh, Kirkenes in uh, northern Norway, is a fascinating one. I actually want to try to get a hold of the mayor of that town to talk about to bo- talk about that here mm-hmm. in the podcast. Um, but uh, just to wrap up, Mia, the great uh, great analysis and discussion here today on the podcast with you. Um, what do you think about the future of, of observers in the Arctic Council in general, the five Asian observers uh, so far? And do you see uh, other additional countries uh, pursuing observer status in the Arctic Council? Of course, Switzerland has, has become an observer since 2013. Other countries have applied. Some have been, I guess, rejected. Others maybe have their um, applications being reviewed. How do you see that developing, this, this idea of observers in the Arctic Council? And do you see their roles becoming more important or diminishing? And in general, what do you see as, as sort of the developments in the observers in the Arctic Council? So again, this is a question that I think would probably be better addressed as someone who is, you know, working in the Arctic Council and knows kind of how these diplomatic interactions are playing out um, day in and day out. But I think that from the outside, hopefully we'll see, I actually see the permanent participants as playing more of a visible role in the coming years. The observers, I think, yeah, I don't know if there's a lot of appetite among the member states to see the observers further broadened because I think they felt that there was a lot of energy spent on debating the Asian observers' applications, on accepting them, and now having to integrate them and try and ensure that they're not just, you know, they're um, on file, but that they're actually doing the work that is expected, as we discussed, of Arctic Council observers. So I think, um, you know, Switzerland joined, but some people will say that was kind of just the pet project of one very wealthy um, Swiss individual. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much farther other observer applications will get. Um, the reason I, that I think permanent participants might kind of see their role strengthen is I think there's a lot of, of course, goodwill towards them. There's a lot of desire um, that increases every year, I think, to work with Indigenous peoples. There's increasing recognition um, within the global governance, and then, of course, among even Asian observers, that the indigenous people should be consulted, they're not only stakeholders, but they're rights holders in the region. Um, so the permanent participants, I think, hopefully will have even stronger voices um, in discussions um, at these meetings. And I think they may even see this spill over to other forums. Um, so the example I would give to illustrate that was I was at um, meetings at the International Maritime Organization. Um, in London in February earlier this year, and they were debating amendments to the Polar Code. And the Inuit Circumpolar Council, which is um, an incredible organization in its own right, but also is a permanent um, participant in the Arctic Council, they've applied to be an observer um, to the IMO. So you can kind of see how international diplomatic experience built in one organization, um, and of course, in all the other doings that the ICC has can um, help Indigenous peoples to further rise in other diverse um, international organizations. So it's kind of exciting to see, I think, 
this moment of Indigenous empowerment and hopefully um, increasing engagement of and by Indigenous peoples, not only in Arctic, but perhaps even um, in other parts of the world. Well, it's a bit of a laboratory in that sense, uh, the way that uh, the Arctic Council has been sort of uh, hailed as a, as a place where permanent participants have had uh, a greater voice perhaps than in some other uh, international organizations and uh, perhaps uh, there could be some positive spillover to other parts of the world as well, as you mentioned. Uh, Dr. Mia Bennett, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong and the, the founder and the, the driver of the, the really excellent uh, cryopolitics blog. Thank you very much for joining us here at Poetry Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure.